Good morning. It's really good to be here this morning, and thanks um, for the beautiful worship. That was really wonderful. So we have been working our way through the book of Corinthians, which is the letter that Paul wrote to the fledgling church in the Greek city of Corinth. It's a church full of problems. There's divisions, there's immorality, there's pride, there's trouble with the way communion has been taken, and now in the passage that we're going to look at today, Paul is addressing order in the worship services. So let's uh, read our passage for today. It comes from 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is being said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So, my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Who's feeling a little bit uncomfortable at this point? (laughs) I know that I am, but bear with me. Obviously, different churches have different ways of understanding this passage. Otherwise, Carl wouldn't have asked me to speak, and I wouldn't be up here speaking. So we're going to deal with this passage. But first, I want to talk us through what we do when we come across a passage like this in the scripture that slaps us in the face, that challenges us, that confronts us and makes us uncomfortable. It is good to wrestle with scripture. Like Jacob who wrestled with God and came away with a limp and a blessing. When we wrestle, we ourselves are changed. And we need to be open to this. I'm going to give you three C's to help you deal with difficult scripture. The first is with care. The first thing we need to do is to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. We're living in a cultural context that is very different to when the words were first written. We have 2,000 years or more between us and that time, and even at the time Jesus spoke to his disciples, they didn't always understand. They needed help from time to time. Likewise, we need help to understand parts of the Bible. 
So I really want to encourage you not to just dismiss things that seem too hard, but to take hold of them, to pray about them, to talk about them, to engage with them. Uh, at this point, I'm going to need a volunteer from the audience. Can, is there anyone who would like to help me for just a minute? We don't, we don't have to have a volunteer, but it would be helpful. Okay, thanks. So, uh, I've got a chopping board. Uh, oh, you know what? Is it this? What's this? Yeah. Um, Malcolm, there's a ripe one in the side of the, of the nappy bag. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going well with my props so far today. <laughs> um, so um, I'm going to ask my lovely assistant here to please open this avocado with the, the board and the knife. Just cut it open for us. Great, can you hold it up? So he's opened the avocado. Who thinks that he's done this the right way? Who else would open an avocado this way? Yeah, so my whole life, you can, you can sit down. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> can we have a hand for my lovely assistant? <laughs> my whole life, I grew up opening avocados this way. This is obviously the right way to open an avocado, right? Until one day, I was at a picnic, and somebody picked up their avocado and their knife, and they opened it that way. They cut it in half that way. I know. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. My point is, we come to things with assumptions, and sometimes there are assumptions that we don't even know that we hold. So when we're dealing with the Bible, we almost need to come in with this mindset that we will have assumptions, that we may need to put aside before we can come to understanding. Malcolm and I had the privilege of living in Ireland for a year, and it's really the rainiest country I've ever been to. <laughs> it was cold, it was dark, it was gloomy, and in the midst of this, we had this wonderful little church, about 30 people that met in the basement of a building, and our, our pastor was um, an ex-anarchist punk from California who'd become a Christian and been sent to Ireland as a missionary. And we loved that church. They were our family. They were wonderful to us. And they really got us through those kind of cold, dark times in Ireland. There was one thing, though. This church didn't believe that women should speak in church. And they used the verse that we're looking at today and another one from Second Timothy to back this up. But somehow it troubled me. It bothered me. It kind of itched away at me and I really couldn't find peace with it. And so I asked God about it. I started to really pray about this whole issue of whether women are able to speak. And maybe it was something in me that knew that speaking was something that was part of my gifting that was scratching away there. And so I prayed about it, and we happened to be visiting a different town, and we were asked to come along to see a speaker. This was a woman called Deborah Gill. Now, she has a PhD in biblical studies. She's taught Greek, New Testament, and hermeneutics, did I say that right, uh, for about 20 years. And she's written a book looking at this particular issue. So I was able to hear her speak, talk to her. 
I now have a signed copy of her book. But more than that, I really felt like God had answered my prayer on this particular topic, and I had peace about it. So that's our first C, with care. The second C is in community. We're not meant to understand the scripture alone. We kind of live in a very individualistic culture, and we're used to our own personal Bibles and our personal devotions, but for hundreds of years, the church read scripture together. That was the only way people could hear the word of God. And we need to remember this. We need to talk to each other about scripture. Talk to Carl, talk to others in the church who've looked at and studied scripture. Wrestle with difficult passages together. Other people with different insights and different life experience will have different understanding of scripture. And so we get a bigger picture when we delve into scripture as a community. The final C is in context. Context is key. It's the background, the setting, the way that the passage fits into the book that it's in and into the Bible as a whole. The historical context shows us what historical influences were at work and how they've shaped that particular passage. The literary context shows us what kind of writing it is. Is it a letter? Is it a book of songs? Is it a narrative story? So I've got three questions as well that will help us kind of deal with scripture when it's challenging. Is the piece of scripture, uh, that was a good tongue twister, is a piece of scripture descriptive or prescriptive? Is it descriptive or prescriptive? In other words, is it telling us what to do or is it telling us what has happened? Scripture helps to interpret scripture. So we need to look at what other passages say about the same topic. If we take a passage out of its context and we're not looking at what the entire Bible has got to say about something, it can seem like it means something other than what it is intended to to mean. And the third thing to remember is that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The fullness of God and all his plans and revelation are seen in Jesus. So when we have scripture that we are struggling with, we go back to the life and the words of Jesus and see what he has to say about the topic that we're dealing with. So let's get to the nitty-gritty. Let's get into this particular passage we're looking at today. Corinth at that time was a really busy place. It was a trade city. It was full of different people, different cultures. A lot of different religions were there, and it was a wealthy city. Women in that culture, both Greek culture and Jewish culture, were very much inferior to men. They were seen as property. They had very few rights, received very little education, and usually were not um, able to be out in public much. It was quite restricted as to what they could do in public. So the early church was unusual and possibly even shocking in that women were part of the church services. That was countercultural even at that time. Something worth just looking at here is that um, in our translations of the Bible, the punctuation has been added by translators afterwards. And in some instances, this punctuation is open to interpretation. So in our passage for today, can we have it up there again? Um, Verse 33 and 34... 
For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. There's a debate about whether that's a full stop or a comma. Does it read like this? As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. Or does it read like this? God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, comma, as in all the churches of the saints, full stop. The woman should keep silent in the churches. So my point about this is that it's complicated. At some point, someone's made a decision there. And at some point, we do the same. When I researched this, there are a whole lot of different interpretations of this. And the one that I'm going to present to you is the most convincing argument, the one with the fewest kind of gaps in its logic, and the one that seems to fit um, the questions best. It's really appealing to our kind of human nature to have everything black and white. This is what it means. Absolutely, no questions. I've got it sorted. But the more I walk with God, the more I realize that that is not always the case. The Bible is there to point us to Jesus, and we worship Jesus, but not the Bible. When we're Christians, we're not by billions. So I'm not saying that it's not important to do our best to get things right. We should. We should try the best we can to understand correctly. But ultimately, that's not what's at the center of our faith. The center of our faith is a person, and the Bible points us to that person, to that being, to God. Yeah. So when we look at the literary context, what, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about women speaking? 1 Corinthians 11, in that same book, Paul allows women to pray and prophesy in church when they do it in a culturally appropriate manner. And Carl talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but prophecy in the New Testament has a slightly different meaning to what we usually think of it as meaning today. It's not just foretelling, telling the future, but also forthtelling. And that is the anointed preaching of God's word for that time and place. So at times, prophecy in the New Testament church looked very similar to what we would call preaching today. It involves understanding the meaning of the scripture, seeing its relevance to the life of an individual or a group, and declaring that message. Women actually were leaders within the early church. Romans 16, Acts 16, Acts 18, you can see the names of these women listed. Phoebe, Priscilla, Lydia, Persis, Mary, Junia, and there are others. But they were active leaders in the church. There's another verse that people often use to say that women shouldn't speak in church, and that comes from Timothy 2.12. And Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. Now, I don't have the time to address this verse today, other than to say that all the available evidence suggests, the most convincing argument about this verse suggests that Paul was addressing it to a specific woman who had been teaching false doctrine within that church. And it was to this woman he said, I do not permit her to teach. Paul deliberately leaves this woman unnamed and wants her to be restored in a right attitude to the church. 
In Acts 2, Peter quotes the prophet Joel, and it's a beautiful piece of poetry. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In Galatians 3, verse 28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself taught women. He cared for women. He had women among his closest friends. And finally, he commissioned the first people to see his resurrection, that is, women, to go and spread the word to his other disciples. What more basic commission to preach is there? So within this letter to the church at Corinth, Paul is addressing order. Three kinds of people are told to be silent. And is the verse up there? Yeah. Um, can we have it from the beginning? So can you please tell me the first people um, that are told to be silent? So the next, next bit, Christia. Sorry, I should have said... Right, so the first kinds of people that are told to be silent, does anyone want to guess? Yeah, tongue speakers. The second kinds of people told to be silent, the prophets. So tongue speakers are told to be silent if there's no interpreter present. Prophets are told to be silent if another prophet has a revelation. Women are told to be silent. And here's the context that we need to understand. Paul doesn't appear to explain why women are told to be silent within the text itself. So this is where the context really matters. We've got a couple of clues. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace. And verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. This passage is dealing with a specific problem in the church in Corinth. Paul's asking these women to remain silent when their, verses, when their voices are contributing to chaotic and disorderly worship. How do we know this? Well, we're getting back to the original Greek here, which is, I love this kind of stuff, but bear with me if you find it confusing. But it actually does start to shed light on what Paul is trying to say. So Greek had several different words for silent one means to be tied shut or muzzled, like a muzzle on a dog. One means quietness or stillness. But the word that Paul chooses to use here is segal, and that means a voluntary silence. It's a little bit like saying, hold your peace. It can take the form of a request. Jesus asks the persistent beggar in Luke 18 to stop yelling and when Paul motions to the crowd in Acts 12 to be silent, he uses this word, segal, hold your peace. The second word we're going to look at is the word for speak. Now, Greek also had words for speaking like I'm doing today, giving a formal sermon or uh, speech. Um, but the word that Paul chooses to use here is laleo. It can be translated as talk. Or in the present continuous, keep on talking. That's what it means. And it can have the connotation of chattering. 
keep on talking. So when Paul says that they, that women should be in submission, as the law says, what does he mean? There is actually no Mosaic law telling women to be quiet or to be in submission to men in worship. Paul was a scholar and he knew this. So he's confused a lot of scholars on this issue. There is a law that Paul could be appealing to, and that's the subject of chapter 13, where he talks about love. The law of love. The word that he uses, hupotassimai, translated as be in submission to or be subject to, is not attached to a clear subject. Who is Paul telling these women in Corinth to be in submission to? Or what is he telling them to be in submission to? So in this original language, hupotassimai can mean a voluntary attitude of submission in response to the needs of others. So he's starting to get a picture here. Paul is asking the women to hold their peace, to stop talking continually, so that everybody can be built up, so that everybody can hear. Missionaries in China in the 1920s found themselves in a really similar situation. China was a patriarchal society where the women were kept at home, they weren't given a lot of education, they weren't accustomed to coming to formal gatherings like church. And when they got there, they thought it was a great chance to catch up on the gossip, to shout questions across to their husbands who were sitting in another part of the church. You know, this context helps us understand what was also happening back in Corinth. The woman there may not have had the social graces that the men would have had, and they may have had more religious questions. So it sounds very restrictive to our ears, but in fact, Paul is saying he wants people to learn. He just wants them to do it in a way that doesn't impact on others. He says, learn in a more appropriate context. Ask your husbands at home. And this is something that was not done in Judaism at the time. It really wasn't. So our, our three people that are told to be silent, the tongue speakers must be silent if there's no interpreter present. Prophets must be silent if another prophet has a revelation. And women must be silent if they're continually talking in church. So Paul is applying the same principle that he does in Ephesians 5.21. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let all things be done for building up. So something that happened in the religions at the time was that people would, um, in, the, in the pagan religions at that time, is that people could fall into a trance and kind of shriek and babble nonsensically. But Paul makes it really clear in this passage that this is not the case for Christians. The gifts of the Spirit come on us, but we are in control of how we use them. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In verse 32 it says this. So likewise in a church service, we have the self-control not to ask questions, interrupt the service, and most of the time we don't heckle the preacher. Sometimes we do. Paul isn't trying to disempower women, but he's trying to encourage worship that has a balance of the free flow of God's Spirit with people prophesying, praying in tongues, exercising spiritual gifts, but doing so in a way that everyone can be built up. The Message Bible says verses 32 and 33 like this. 
If you choose to speak, you're also responsible for how and when you speak. When we worship the right way, God doesn't stir us up into confusion. He brings us into harmony. This goes for all the churches, no exceptions. So are you still with me? <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot, I know. We're going to look at how this applies to us today. We've got hundreds of years of church tradition, as well as formal education, that help us know how we ought to behave in a church service. The role and status of women in our culture has improved significantly. And most of the time, order isn't an issue to us. And I've seen it here before, where we've had these beautiful moments where people have prophesied and called out a scripture of encouragement, and it's all built together to give us this picture of what God is saying to our church in that moment. But I do want to encourage you not to give up on difficult and challenging Bible verses. Work through them with care, in community, and in context. I really believe that Paul's message can be summed up like this. When we meet together, in everything you do, have the goal of building each other up from love, exercising your spiritual gifts in an orderly and peaceful way that's appropriate for the people of God. Now, I actually can't do last-minute things at the moment because I've got two small people. And um, I had this sermon mostly ready a couple of weeks ago. And I'd, I'd sent it off to Carl on the Friday, and I came to church that Sunday. And Carl got up, and he stole the ending of my sermon. <laughs> but actually, he hadn't stolen it. He hadn't looked at my sermon yet. Um, he just said what... I was planning on saying to you, but I'm going to say it again because I think that that really affirms what God is saying to these, to this church, to us in this season. Let all things be done for building up. So I really want to thank you. I want to thank all of the mums who look after kids so that fathers can be released to do worship or to do the um, kids' ministry. I want to thank you for all the kids' workers who take our very lively, lovely, noisy kids, so that they can learn about God and also so that we can hear the service. I want to thank you who do the tea and the coffee and the dishes and who come early to set up and who stay late to pack down. And I also want to thank you who just care for each other out in the community, you know, who pray for each other and encourage each other and build each other up. And I've felt so um, built up, really. It's been a hard week, and I haven't had a lot of sleep, and I've had so many people say, oh, I'm praying for you, or thinking of you, and and that's built me up this week, so thank you. And I, I also want to acknowledge that for, for some of us, there are seasons where it's enough just to turn up, just to be here, and for that, well done. You know, you're part of the body, and um, in all our seasons, we make up the diversity of the church. So whatever you're doing to build up the body of Christ, to love each other, it's so worthwhile. And for that, well done.